Welcome to Season 2 of Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a confidence life coach, comedian and mother of two. I invite you to join me bi-weekly for confidence tips and interesting chats with my guests who work in fields that help develop confidence. And sometimes with people who have a personal story to share of how they were able to break free from fears that held them back from living their life with confidence and purpose. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of Breaking Free. This is actually part two of The Power of Reading, which I did in the last episode. And I'm overjoyed to say that the feedback has been amazing with your emails telling me how you found the books that I mentioned beneficial. And if I could, in this other episode, the continuation, talk about more books that are to do with self-help or biographies that have true stories that are inspiring. So as much as I said that fiction is also really great for our imagination, for us to resonate with other characters that we may not see very much in public media, you know, because it's usually the extroverts that we're seeing talking um, on the news or on stage or performing. And it's not really the introverts that are the heroes that are celebrated. Whereas in books and in fiction, we can see that, we can read that, we can feel that. So I am going to concentrate on three more books that I found really powerful, that I found help me understand a lot of things about myself and about the people around me that I would highly, highly recommend. It was really difficult to choose and pick favourites. There have been so many books that I'm inspired by. And I thought I'd recommend to you a great way to choose books, share books, review, rate books, um, see what other people said about them on an app called Goodreads. And the nice thing about Goodreads as well is if you've got other friends who are on there, you can share together and see what books they've read and, and you can recommend to them the books that you've read. It's a great way to remember that there's a particular book that you heard about but maybe don't want to buy now and just remind yourself of it. You can just put it in there as well under books that I want to read. So I'd highly recommend Goodreads. It's really fun. It also shows you how much you've been reading because we tend to forget as well what books we have read in the past and it's a great way to refer back to it. And I'm going to jump straight in there with the first book that I'm going to talk about. The Untethered Soul, The Journey Beyond Yourself, and it's by Michael A. Singer. The description that's written about this book is what it would be like to free yourself from limitations and soar beyond your boundaries. What can you do each day to discover inner peace and serenity? The Untethered Soul offers simple yet profound answers to these questions. Whether this is your first exploration of inner peace or you've devoted your life to the inward journey, this book will transform your relationship with yourself and the world around you. You'll discover what you can do to put an end to the habitual thoughts and emotions that limit your consciousness. By tapping into traditions of meditation and mindfulness, author and spiritual teacher Michael A. Singer shows how the development of consciousness can enable us all to dwell in the present moment and let go of painful thoughts and memories that keep us from achieving happiness and self-realization. 
So to give you an idea about what you would find in this book, it has fantastic ways of describing what it feels like to be in pain and how we deal with it. So for instance, how we deal with pain is very similar to, let's say there's a thorn that's in your arm and it's really, really painful and it's touching a nerve. So you have two choices. You can either do nothing about it and try to protect it in every way possible so that nothing touches it, so you don't feel the pain, or you can take it out. Now, it sounds very simple and it sounds logical to take it out, but of course there's going to be some initial stronger pain taking it out. But I'm sure you've all had this experience with a splinter or a thorn or anything getting under your skin and it being really, really painful to get out with a tweezer or whichever way, opening up the skin a little bit to take it out. But once you have, you really, really forget about it. It's not a pain that lingers with you for years and years and you remember that splinter that you once had. Even the next day you've forgotten that that had happened. So getting over the pain there and then and being brave enough to face it and feel it and deal with it is the key. However, most humans will want to protect themselves to not feel that pain. Now, deciding not to suffer anymore is down to us, which choice we make. And the writer compares us choosing to protect ourselves, to protect our pain, the same way as building a device, for instance, and being really clever about this device that we could wear that could protect us, that if we went for a walk in the forest, no branch would hit against us or be able to touch us. If we were walking in a street and there's lots of people or we're at a party, no one would bang into our arm so we don't feel that pain. It's going to protect us. But then suddenly we fall in love with someone and we realise that this device is in the way. We can't hug them, we can't be hugged. So now what are we going to do? So we try and move this device around to a particular way and adjust it so that maybe we can love a little but not fully. And it goes on and on as this device becomes bigger and more complicated in order to protect us. So if we just think about how that is in in real life, we might start avoiding situations that might remind us of our pain and stop going out and stop mixing with people or stop um, taking brave new steps to put ourselves out there and do the things that we love or pursue a career that we've always dreamt of because we're always worried about the pain. So it really does hold us back. Whereas if we just take that leap, take that thorn out, deal with that initial pain that might have scared us at the time, hurt us at the time, we can move forward. So there's a wonderful description that makes it really clear how as humans we deal with that. And in another chapter, the writer mentions an Indian Hindu sage called Ramana Maharashi, once asking, who are you? And it seems like a simple question, right? Who are you? So 
a person would say, I am Dr. So-and-so, I am uh, the artist, whoever, I am married to so-and-so, I am Mrs. This or I'm Mr. That, I'm the mother of this child or that child, I'm a teacher at this school, um, I'm a lecturer, whatever it may be. And he goes, no, that's not who you are. That's what you do. Who are you? So then we think about maybe explaining our bio. Um, well, when I was young, I started out in the theatre. And then as I grew up, I went to this school. And then I discovered that I was good at this. So I applied for that degree. And then I travelled and I experienced this or that. And I got married. No. Who are you? So he asks, did you not exist before those things happened? Before you became the mother of someone or the wife of someone or the husband of someone or the doctor? No, you did exist. So who are you at your core? So then maybe that person will try to describe their body. I'm a uh, five foot six uh woman who's 40. Um, I look like this. And then he asks again, but aren't you the same person who is in the five-year-old body? So again, who are you? Whether you were four foot or now five foot six, or whether you were five and now you're 40. The person who is you is embodying that body and always has. So these sort of deeper questions as he explains them and says who we are are very, very interesting. He also has a chapter describing how people have never experienced what it's like to not suffer. We are suffering so much that we don't know the peacefulness, the feeling of what it's like to not suffer. Now, when we have... Uh, an injury, an ailment in our body, we focus on it. We know that we're suffering and we focus on it. But if it's not there, we just go about our normal day not thinking about our body. However, the psychological suffering that we go through is constant. We are thinking about ourselves all the time. I, me, because the psyche is fragile in there and it hasn't felt okay for a long time because it's worrying about the future. It's worrying about things that haven't happened. It's worrying about, do people like me? Did they think this when I wore this? Did that smile mean something else or was it actually a smile? Is my son going to be okay at school? All these things are constant psychological worries. And so he says we have given our mind too much responsibility of telling our mind, I don't want to be hurt, I don't want to feel pain, so please make sure that everyone likes me. Please make sure that I'm not hurt. Protect and keep my children safe. One hundred million things we're giving the mind to do to protect us from feeling any pain. 
And so the mind is on overdrive. It's always active and it can't calm down because it can't possibly protect us from everything. So it's always trying to alert us. Be careful of this. Be careful of that. Don't try this. Don't try that. This could happen. That could happen. And that's why we're continuously in in fear. So he has great ways of explaining how we can calm that down and how to see from a very, very different perspective and start letting in that inner peace. So moving on to the next book is Will by Will Smith. So this is new and it's also written with Mark Manson, the help of Mark Manson. It's an instant number one New York Times bestseller and Oprah Winfrey says it's the best memoir she's ever read. And the audiobook gives it so much because he performs and does all the voices and all the accents of everybody that's in the book, all the characters, his family and friends. So, of course, it really is going to have that extra factor of being one of the best memoirs. However, that isn't the only reason. The reason is he is so vulnerable in it and so open and honest about his fierceness to succeed, how he needed to be number one at everything and where that came from. As he's grown older, as he's matured, he's been able to understand his triggers, his traumas, what drives him and how that's lost him a lot of connection with his loved ones within his own family, which is where he wanted the love the most, where he needed it the most. But his belief that if he was the best at everything, if he was number one, if he worked really hard, that would give him the love that he needed. And there was still a void inside of him because he wasn't really fulfilling the part that was empty. And I actually felt very sorry for him. I know a lot of people attacked him. Um, because of what he did at the Oscars, which was slap actor Chris Rock, who was presenting the awards and insulted Will Smith's wife in front of everyone by comparing her to G.I. Jane, who was played by Demi Moore um, and was bald in that film, knowing very well that Jada had alopecia and it must have taken her a lot of courage to come and dress up and be at the Oscars completely bald, owning it and feeling beautiful to then be kind of joked about in front of everyone there. Now, the way that Will Smith reacted, and in coaching we would call that a reaction, not a response. A response is when we take a breath, a pause, a moment to think about how do I want to respond to this? But a reaction just comes instinctively from the gut. It's very quick and a lot of the time we regret how we've reacted and wish that we'd responded and taken that moment or that breath. So having read the book just weeks before, I couldn't help but feel that after all these successes and now the Oscar, now his biggest, biggest moment, his most important moment on stage, 
is when his trigger still failed him. His biggest thing that he's been working with and trying to overcome, which he mentions in his book, is his need to protect his woman more than anything else. I mean, his family as well, but his woman, his wife, his girlfriend, his mother, because it comes from, as a child, watching his father beat up his mother, abuse his mother, and him not being able to do anything or to help. He would freeze, which is natural for any child who's young and scared of his father to not be able to protect his mother, but to freeze and just stand by and let it happen. And he's never forgiven himself. He's always felt a responsibility and a guilt and a shame for not being able to stand up for his mother. And so that became his one main thing in life, that he had to be everything and do everything to please whoever the woman was that he was with in his life. And so I can see how at the Oscars, when Chris Rock said that comment and everybody laughed, Will laughed as well, but when he looked at his wife and he saw that she was angry and that she was upset, he suddenly, probably, I'm assuming, felt that need to protect, felt that need that he'd have to go and prove that he was protecting her and that he was not allowing this. And when you're reacting that quickly out of, out of a need to protect you're not thinking straight. What he could have done if he was responding and thought a little bit is perhaps take the mic away from Chris Rock so that Chris couldn't continue talking and everyone hear him and have words with him and say that that is not on. That is bullying, which I think is bullying and abuse for him to do that to a woman going through that publicly, publicly or privately, was not on. And I don't think enough people talked about that what was wrong, what Chris did was wrong. And Will just went with trying to prove to Jada by slapping him. So he didn't go into a full punch or a fight, but he needed to, I suppose, degrade him, show him that he wasn't going to allow that. But I can see how from what he describes in that book is something that he's really been struggling with and working with. So there's a lot of humour in the book. There's a lot of him trying to prove himself to to be more of the tough guy when everybody just saw him sort of as silly. Um, his His big auditions, how he competed with other actors like Tom Cruise, who was always number one, who travelled so many countries to promote every single movie and he would always study how he could top that, how he could do better than that. So he figured out a way that if he did weekends as well, because Tom might not do weekends um, on his tours, then he could top that and he could get the number one rating. So it it's a really, really interesting read where you understand him as a human being and and through that understand how all of us as human beings have our insecurities have our strong points how we are driven by things because of fear or past experiences 
how we can learn from them and reflect and grow. So things that were said about the book by USA Today was Will Smith isn't holding back in his bravely inspiring new memoir. An ultimately heartwarming read, Will provides a humane glimpse of the man behind the actor, producer and musician as he bears all his insecurities and trauma. It's the winner of the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Achievement. And the book's description is one of the most dynamic and globally recognised entertainment forces of our time, opens up fully about his life in a brave and inspiring book that traces his learning curve to a place where outer success, inner happiness and human connection are aligned. Along the way, Will tells the story in full of one of the most amazing rides through the worlds of music and film that anyone has ever had. Will Smith's transformation from a West Philadelphia kid to one of the biggest rap stars of his era and then one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood history is an epic tale, but it's only half the story. Will Smith thought, with good reason, that he had won at life. Not only was his own success unparalleled, his whole family was at the pinnacle of the entertainment world. Only they didn't see it that way. They felt more like star performers in his circus, a seven days a week job they hadn't signed up for. It turned out Will Smith's education wasn't nearly over. This memoir is the product of a profound journey of self-knowledge, a reckoning with all that your will can get you and all that it can leave behind. Will is the story of how one person mastered his own emotions, written in a way that can help everyone else do the same. And ending with the third book, which has been a great favourite of mine and so many other people, is Daring Greatly. How the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent and lead by Brené Brown. Brené is a researcher and thought leader, and I've mentioned her a lot in other podcast episodes. She's an American professor, lecturer, author and podcast host. She's known in particular for her research on shame, vulnerability and leadership and for her widely viewed TEDx talk in 2010. That's the first thing that shot her to fame and got her on Oprah and really introduced her to the world. Since then, she has written six number one New York Times bestselling books, hosts two podcasts, and has filmed a lecture for Netflix, as well as a series about her latest book, Atlas of the Heart, on HBO Max. Dr. Brené Brown offers a powerful new vision that encourages us to dare greatly, to embrace vulnerability and imperfection, to live wholeheartedly and to courageously engage in our lives. She starts the book with a wonderful speech that was given by Theodore Roosevelt, which says, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. 
So it goes on to explain about the book that every day we experience the uncertainty, risks and emotional exposure that define what it means to be vulnerable or to dare greatly. Whether the arena is a new relationship, an important meeting, our creative process or a difficult family conversation, we must find the courage to walk into vulnerability and engage with our whole hearts. In Daring Greatly, Dr. Brown challenges everything we think we know about vulnerability. Based on 12 years of research, she argues that vulnerability is not weakness, but rather our clearest path to courage, engagement and meaningful connection. I will read from chapter two, entitled Debunking the Vulnerability Myths. The perception that vulnerability is weakness is the most wildly accepted myth about vulnerability and the most dangerous. When we spend our lives pushing away and protecting ourselves from feeling vulnerable or from being perceived as too emotional, we feel contempt when others are less capable or willing to mask feelings. Suck it up and soldier on. We've come to the point where rather than respecting and appreciating the courage and daring behind vulnerability, we let our fear and discomfort become judgment and criticism. Vulnerability isn't good or bad. It's not what we call a dark emotion, nor is it always a light, positive experience. Vulnerability is the core of all emotions and feelings. To feel is to be vulnerable. To believe vulnerability is weakness is to believe that feeling is weakness. To foreclose on our emotional life out of a fear that the costs will be too high is to walk away from the very thing that gives purpose and meaning to living. Our rejection of vulnerability often stems from our associating it with dark emotions like fear, shame, grief, sadness and disappointment, emotions that we don't want to discuss, even when they profoundly affect the way we live, work, love and even lead. What most of us fail to understand and what took me a decade of research to learn is that vulnerability is also the cradle of the emotions and experiences that we crave. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. I know this is hard to believe, especially when we've spent our lives thinking that vulnerability and weakness are synonymous, but it's true. I define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure. With that definition in mind, let's think about love. Waking up every day and loving someone who may or may not love us back, whose safety we can't ensure, who may stay in our lives or may leave without a moment's notice, who may be loyal to the day they die or betray us tomorrow. That's vulnerability. Love is uncertain. It's incredibly risky. And loving someone leaves us emotionally exposed. Yes, it's scary. And yes, we're open to being hurt. But can you imagine your life without loving or being loved? To put our art, our writing, our photography, our ideas out into the world with no assurance of acceptance or appreciation, that's also vulnerability. To let ourselves sink into the joyful moments of our lives, even though we know that they are fleeting, even though the world tells us not to be too happy, lest we invite disaster, that's an intense form of vulnerability. 
The profound danger is that, as noted above, we start to think of feeling as weakness, with the exception of anger, which is a secondary emotion, one that only serves as a socially acceptable mask for many of the more difficult underlying emotions we feel. We're losing our tolerance for emotion and hence for vulnerability. It starts to make sense that we dismiss vulnerability as weakness only when we realise that we've confused feeling with failing and emotions with liabilities. If we want to reclaim the essential emotional part of our lives and reignite our passion and purpose, we have to learn how to own and engage with our vulnerability and how to feel the emotions that come with it. For some of us, it's new learning, and for others, it's relearning. Either way, the research taught me that the best place to start is with defining, recognising and understanding vulnerability. What really brings the definition of vulnerability up close and personal are the examples people shared when I asked them to finish this sentence. When I asked them to finish this sentence stem, vulnerability is... dot dot dot. And here are some of the replies. So see which ones out of these resonate with you. Do you also feel vulnerable when you do any of these things? Sharing an unpopular opinion. Standing up for myself. Asking for help. Standing up for myself. Asking for help. Saying no. Starting my own business. Helping my 37-year-old wife with stage 4 breast cancer make decisions about her will. Initiating sex with my wife. Initiating sex with my husband. Hearing how much my son wants to make first chair in the orchestra and encouraging him while knowing that it's probably not going to happen. Calling a friend whose child just died. Signing up my mum for hospice care. The first date after my divorce. Saying I love you first and not knowing if I'm going to be loved back. Writing something I wrote or a piece of art that I made. Getting promoted and not knowing if I'm going to succeed. Getting fired. Falling in love. Trying something new. Bringing my new boyfriend home. Getting pregnant after three miscarriages. Waiting for the biopsy to come back. Reaching out to my son who's going through a difficult divorce. Exercising in public, especially when I don't know what I'm doing and I'm out of shape. Admitting I'm afraid. Stepping up to the plate again after a series of strikeouts. Telling my CEO that we won't make payroll next month. Laying off employees. Presenting my product to the world and getting no response. Standing up for myself and for friends when someone else is critical or gossiping. Being accountable. Asking for forgiveness. Having faith. So those are some of the things that people said in the research. Do these sound like weaknesses, she writes? Does showing up to be with someone in deep struggle sound like a weakness? Is accepting accountability weak? Is stepping up to the plate after striking out a sign of weakness? No. Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. Yes, we are totally exposed when we are vulnerable. Yes, we are in the torture chamber that we call uncertainty, 
And yes, we're taking a huge emotional risk when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable. But there's no equation. We're taking risks, braving uncertainty and opening ourselves up to emotional exposure equals weakness. When we ask the question, how does vulnerability feel? The answers were equally as powerful. And there's a part in the book that I'd like to share about the three lessons she learned about joy and light from people who have spent time in sorrow and darkness. And these are the three things. One, joy comes to us in moments, ordinary moments. We risk missing out on joy when we get too busy chasing down the extraordinary. Scarcity culture may keep us afraid of living small, ordinary lives, but when you talk to people who have survived great losses, it is clear that joy is not a constant. Without exception, all the participants who spoke to me about their losses and what they missed the most spoke about ordinary moments. If I could come downstairs and see my husband sitting at the table and cursing at the newspaper, if I could hear my son giggling in the backyard... My mum sent me the craziest texts. She never knew how to work her phone. I'd give anything to get one of those texts right now. 2. Be grateful for what you have. When I asked people who had survived tragedy how we can cultivate and show more compassion for people who are suffering, the answer was always the same. Don't shrink away from the joy of your child because I've lost mine. Don't take what you have for granted. Celebrate it. Don't apologise for what you have. Be grateful for it and share your gratitude with others. Are your parents healthy? Be thrilled. Let them know how much they mean to you. When you honour what you have, you're honouring what I've lost. Number three, don't squander joy. We can't prepare for tragedy and loss. When we turn every opportunity to feel joy into a test drive for despair, we actually diminish our resilience. Yes, softening into joy is uncomfortable. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's vulnerable. But every time we allow ourselves to lean into joy and give into those moments, we build resilience and we cultivate hope. The joy becomes part of who we are. And when bad things happen, and they do happen, we are stronger. I'll leave you with that and I hope that you enjoy reading any of these three books one day in the future or at least have taken something that's helpful from listening to little excerpts that I've enjoyed in them. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me on my website, raniakurdi.com. Let me know what you think, what books you've enjoyed reading and what you'd like more of in future episodes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniakurdi.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.